Critic Chris Packham of The Village Voice says this film is a work of brick-by-brick world-building in the service of characters whose ordinariness is just as carefully crafted. BBC.com's George Perry says the beauty of the film is in the subtle detail of the dialogue and performances which continue to enchant on repeat viewings. And Kate Muir of The Times UK says two words... Marge Gunderson. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Fargo. Reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. Oh. How you doing, eh? Oh, how am I doing? Yeah. I'm pretty nervous, man. We're recording this on November 5th. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Don't oh, you Jesus, know. right. Oh, we're on edge. The Midwestern Minnesota accent is so delightful. I feel like it surprises me that Edie McClurg isn't part of the Fargo-verse because... God damn. Why is she not in there? Would you boys like some grape Kool-Aid? I was thinking that. I was thinking that. And you know what? The series is still running. I assume it's true. She's still she's still out there. Yeah, it's not too late to get Edie McClurg in. But we'll talk about Edie McClurg. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. So you're listening nice to Ruined Story Childhoods, yes. the podcast about cult and classic films, and then we kind of imagine what they could be, what could be done with them as prequels, sequels, reboots, remakes, etc. Musicals, musicals, other stage adaptations. Yes. Um, and Choose your own adventure book series. You know, which yeah, we and haven't done that yet, but you no, know. but we could. And when we do Blue Velvet. Ooh, I've got a fun Blue Velvet story for you, Blue Velvet. I just threw that one in there. So uh, during this month of November, uh, we are focusing on movies that we are thankful for. And I feel like the definition of that is a little fluid. But when we talked about Fargo, it was like, yes, that is exactly the definition of a movie that we are thankful for. And it's nice that we both see it the same way and uh yeah i'm i'm just excited to talk about it yeah and it's also i feel like every movie that we're talking about this month we just have that extra added task of of you know also bringing to the table why we're thankful for it so yeah. with death to smoochie it was just like that movie has made me laugh out loud at my like lowest um, like when, when I have been down, that has been a go-to and, um, continues to be a go-to just anytime I looking for a laugh. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that it falls into that category for me too. And it's like, even though it had been years since I had seen it up until the other week, it brought me even more uh, of a sense of comfort than I thought it would. And when we talked about doing Death to Smoochie for our month of movies that we're thankful for, it definitely made a lot of sense to me in that moment. And I don't know if it's just, 
you know, Robin Williams. I'm very thankful for Robin Williams and all of the work that he has done. And um, Death to Smoochie is such a weird one, but I feel like it had to have been one that spoke to him. I I mean, certainly a lot of his collaborations with Bobcat Goldthwaite, maybe more so. But if we're talking like, you know, this... I'd I'd still call it mid-career movie. That's not like it's not like a family movie. It is a a perverse, bizarre. Well, it's, the opposite. it's absolutely we, we talked about this um on on that episode about how which was something that I hadn't picked up on, I think, until we had that conversation. But that Death to Smoochie could have been Robin Williams' way of saying, like I have been Mrs. Doubtfire and Flubber and Patch Adams and the Bicentennial Man and all that, but deep inside, I am Rainbow fucking Randolph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, I think that it's really interesting that 2002 is a year where he's really exploring other genres. We talked about Insomnia, we talked about One Hour Photo, and Death to Smoochie also being that same year is a really fascinating study of, you know, Robin Williams playing with his options. And, you know, before that, yes, you had other dramatic roles, but very different types of dramatic roles like Goodwill Hunting and What Dreams May Come, the what dreams may come. What Dreams May Come. Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So I think that for the theme Dead Poet Society. Dead Poet Society, exactly. It's so interesting, though, John. I feel like so many of these have come up recently. As we're mentioning these titles, I'm like, well, we talked about What Dreams May Come. I mean, just coincidentally, when we talked about Sister, Sister Act. Act. episode, yeah. Yeah, and we talked about, um, oh, we we talked about Dead Poet Society. We were talking about Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's also a Best Picture nominee that, that year against Driving right. Miss Daisy, if I remember correctly. And I feel, did Good Morning Vietnam come up? No, at some point recently, or no? I don't think so. But um, it frequently comes up in my mind. It's one right. of those that it, it, I mean, and we're not here to talk about Good Morning Vietnam, but no. But yeah. just while we're on the subject of Robin Williams, and I think that Good Morning Vietnam was a really I, I don't know it, his role in that movie makes sense to me from the standpoint of. I don't know, adapting the style of his like stand up comedy to a film role. It was the nexus. It was the nexus yeah. of this real life per the Adrian Cronauer, mm-hmm. you know, real person. Um, and it was kind of like you took Robin Williams and Adrian Cronauer and met maybe not in the middle, maybe 75% towards Robin Williams. Yeah. But it so worked for that movie. Um, and it's just, it's one of my favorites of his and it's so quotable and there's so many scenes from it that I think of when I think of just sharp dialogue and great characters and such a great cast in that movie. Yeah. And also I want to fucking Kirby. (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah. Also, I just wanted to mention before we, uh, move off of death to smoochie, I, 
Another thing that I'm thankful for about it is uh, Edward Norton's performance. And this is somebody who I feel like does a lot of very serious work. You know, you've got American History X, you have Fight Club, uh, you just recently had like Motherless Brooklyn. And this is a movie where he is like, I don't know, just being a complete weirdo, taking it very seriously, but, you know, playing this like very different character than he would normally play. I think he had just- Pure. Very pure. And I think, well, speaking of pure, I think he had done Keeping the Faith just before it, maybe? Um, Yes, Keeping the Faith was 2000. Yeah, which I think was his directorial debut. Yes. I want to say. Yeah. So, which I, I like very much. I think it's a oh, lovely great movie. Oh, great movie. But, movie. But uh, yeah, and, and in Death to Smoochie, you just see him like saying like, well, how can I go balls to the wall in a very different way? And I appreciate that. He does it so he well. That, it. It's it was I think the the biggest surprise of of that movie for me was mm. just how like how far Edward Norton went in that, and also and and also Michael Raspoli. <laughs> Michael Raspoli. Talk about going to a totally different extreme, and we touched on this in, My in name that is episode. Spinner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I gotta go take a dump. <laughs> Uh, I had, so for anybody who doesn't listen often, or if this is your first episode, (laughs) first of all, welcome, but also, you know, I edit the episodes and, you know, inserting sound clips from that movie was really, really fun, especially the Michael Raspoli lines. And there are just so many good ones. Like almost all of his lines are gold. Yes. He's great. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, the movie has aged well, but I would definitely say Michael Raspoli's uh, performance just stands out more to me yeah. watching it recently. But that's that's all I have to say about Death yeah, to Scoochie. Yeah, and for today. So on this episode, this is our first foray into the Coen brothers. Yes, and I mean, like, first of all, can we just say that, can we say that Fargo represents our gratitude for the entire body of work of the Coen brothers. Right. And I'm sure we'll talk about other Coen brothers movies in other episodes, but we're going to talk about a lot of them right here. Well, yes, but with the Coen brothers, there's something about the Coen brothers movies. And it's kind of like, I think about how, you know, all of Quentin Tarantino's movies connect and there's connections between the characters and they all exist in this universe. And that's fun with Quentin Tarantino's movies. As I was thinking about the Coen Brothers movies, I thought to myself, well, gee, I really don't want them to exist in one universe together. Like, I want them to almost be... um separate stories, almost like separate books by the same authors. And I mean, yes, some of their films have been based on books. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) But that's kind of how I see them. Similarly to like, um, you know, a a Wes Anderson. Right. Uh, Well, and we've talked about this before, but there are certain directors where, you know, you have the same actors working with them time and time again. And that, to me, is a sign that like, you know, there's loyalty and there's mm-hmm. a sense of fun that goes into making, like, telling these stories together. And, you know, you have some crossover with Tarantino and the Coen brothers with, like, Steve Buscemi and oh. uh, 
Yeah. And um, the, the, I keep wanting to say Turturro, but I don't think Turturro's done anything with, with Tarantino. It feels like he would have, but I don't think that he has. Anyway, uh, yeah. so Spike Lee, Turturro's big Spike Lee guy. That's true. That's yeah. true. And um, yeah, it's so you see a lot of these same actors popping up in a lot of their movies, and it's just like the Coen Brothers players. You know, it's yeah. like Beth Grant for Joel Schumacher. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, a lot. I mean, you've got well, you've got Francis McDormand who's married well, to Joel Cohen. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, since 1984, right? So there's you know John Goodman shows up a lot. Steve Buscemi obviously shows up a lot. Uh, George Clooney, you know, from Intolerable Cruelty mm-hmm. later. Oh, brother, you know, where art thou? Oh, brother, where art thou? Um, um, Peter Stamari pops up in in Lebowski. Pops up again in Lebowski. Yeah. Uh, in after fact, reading also in, Clooney. Yeah. Oh yeah, well yeah, Clooney, Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar. Uh, Josh Brolin's yeah. another one who's who pops Josh up. Josh Brolin a few times. and Hail Caesar yeah. in yeah. True Grit, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then of course you have and um, No Country for Old Men and No He's, Country for Old Men, yeah. yeah. Jeff and, Bridges, so anyway, Jeff Bridges, of course, True Grit and Big Lebowski. So I put together a a three category situation for characters in. Uh, you're giving me a thumbs up. You know where I'm going with this. I, I know well no because you said characters but I feel like the Coen Brothers movies fit into a three category kind well, of classification but go ahead and I'd love to I'd love to hear you break yeah. that down sometime too but I feel like and this is some something I put together that includes pretty much not see it's hard to pick like a main character from a movie because if we're going for with Fargo you have so many people who could be the main characters but I'm thinking about the people who kind of drive the story you know, like, so um, William H. Macy really drives the story, whereas Marge is, I think, in a lot of ways, more more of a main character, but it wouldn't happen without William H. Macy. Anyway, so we've got three categories as far as I'm concerned. We've got schmucks, we've got schmoes, and we've got no goodnicks. And I would like to break down my list of the three, and I will just mention that it's been a long time since I've seen Blood Simple, and I don't know if your memory is, about it is better than mine, but I did not include Blood Simple. And there's a lot of also, like, you know, ones where they maybe wrote and somebody else directed or directed and somebody else wrote. And- I can only think of one that they wrote and someone else directed. Well, there's been ones where they've yeah. been involved, but, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's there's true. like There's ones where it's, like, a true Coen Brothers movie. Right. Right. So, all right. So here's my list of schmucks. We've got Jerry Lundergaard from Fargo. We've got, because if we're going between schmucks, schmoes, and no goodnicks, he's a schmuck. We've got kind of uh, a schmo. All right. Well, he's a he's a schmuck because he's very selfish. Schmoes, I feel like, are problematic, but passively problematic. And you'll see what I'm talking about. We'll, because, we'll, talk, we'll talk about it when we yeah. talk about the movie. <laughs> so, so schmucks, I've got Jerry Lundegaard. I've got Ed Crane from The Man Who Wasn't There. I have both Miles and Marilyn from Intolerable Cruelty, which is George Clooney and Catherine, Catherine Zeta-Jones. They're schmucks. They're divorce attorneys. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Harry from Burn After Reading, George Clooney's character in that one also. Uh, I'd also say <laughs> Rooster Cogburn in True Grit. He's a schmuck. And um, Tom, Gabriel Byrne's character in Miller's Crossing. 
which I hadn't seen from at least to my knowledge until last night. I was like, I've got to watch Miller's Crossing. Oh, oh, so you yeah. just saw it last night? Oh, yeah. boy. So I'm jealous. Sh- Schmoes, I've got, well, John Turturro and Barton Fink, uh, Norville Barnes and H- the Hudsucker Proxy. I put the dude under Schmoes. Yeah, you're nodding. Um, Brad well, Pitt's character in yeah. Burn After Reading. He's a total schmo. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Ozzy Cox in Burn After Reading is also a schmo. John Malkovich's character. <laughs> uh, by one. the way, I'm sorry. I, I can't because we might not go back to this at all. The mm-hmm. way he pronounces the word memoir in that memoir. movie. Oh, my God. So good. I've always wanted to write. Write. Write what? I've been thinking about writing a um, a book or, a, you, you know, a sort of memoir. <laughs> Burn After Reading, I feel like, is, is very underrated. Larry Gopnik in A Serious Man, total schmo. Lewin Davis from Inside Lewin Davis and mm. uh, Baird Whitlock, Clooney's character in Hell Caesar, schmo. You know? Oh, d- definitely. He's totally so wait- schmo. Lewin Davis, you'd consider more of a schmo than a schmuck? I'd consider him more of a schmo than a schmuck. He kind of like, if there's a Venn diagram, he's kind of in that wedge. Yeah, I get I get that. I yeah. get that. Yeah. Uh, and then there's no good nicks. So uh, we have H.I. and Ed in Raising Arizona. They are total no good nicks. I've got Ulysses McGill and the gang from A Brother Where Art Thou. They're no good nicks. Goldthwaite. Uh, from the Lady Killers, Tom Hanks' character, no good Nick. Anton from No Country for Old Men, total no good Nick. Oh, yeah. He's like beyond, <laughs> he's like if in the Venn diagram, well, he's at the very edge where it's just like, he is just a straight up no good Nick. There's there's no Nick, there's just, just no, no good. good. There is no good about him. Y'all getting any rain up here, Wayne? What way would that be? I seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo? Yeah, and then um, Josh Brolin's character from True Grit, I put as a no good Nick. Oh, yeah. Where's Where's Lebowski? In, uh, well, you, you had the dude under Schmoes. Well, the dude under Schmoes. Schmoes. Is Walter feel, a schmuck? Walter's a schmuck. Donnie is none of the above. Donnie's a schmo. He's a schmo. He's a schmo. Donnie's a schmo. Um, yeah. And I guess, well, uh, you know, J- Jackie, uh, Jackie Treehorn. Jackie no Treehorn. Or a schmuck. Just a He's schmuck. a schmuck. Jackie Treehorn's yeah. a schmuck. Woo is a no good Nick. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one who pissed on the carpet. And the nihilists the also. The nihilists. No good Nicks. Absolutely. All right. So that's Sorry. my, my that's- breakdown of schmucks, schmoes, and no good Nicks. I, I have to throw in there, since we're talking about the Coen brothers, that two of my all-time... I mean, several of my all-time favorite movies are made by the Coen brothers, but um, Barton Fink was an early favorite of mine. And The Big Lebowski, I think, has perhaps taken my number one Well, The Big Lebowski is like candy in a lot of ways. Whereas Barton Fink, you know you have to be in a right mood for it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But goddamn, I remember watching Barton Fink renting it on VHS and I'm pretty sure I watched it like back to back, like watched it around the tape and watched it again. That's awesome. Yeah. So, but let's talk about Fargo. 
Let's talk about. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. All right. So my synopsis clearly has uh, holes in it, which we will we'll we'll fill those in later. But in in order for us just to get through the the synopsis, um, there's a there's just a couple of things missing. All right. So you ready? <laughs> Got another thumbs up. In an effort to have enough money to make a sure thing investment, car salesman Jerry Lundegaard hires two thugs to fake kidnap his wife Jean so that her wealthy father would pay the pricey ransom, which Jerry and the thugs would split. What Jerry doesn't expect is that the kidnappers would get themselves into trouble with the Brainerd, Minnesota Police Department after killing a state trooper and a family of witnesses on their way to a lake house in the middle of nowhere. What's also bad news for Jerry is that the detective on the case is Marge Gunderson, an uber-pregnant investigative ace who outperforms her colleagues and quickly deciphers that they're looking for two guys, one big, one small, driving a car with dealer plates. After speaking with a pair of local sex workers that were hired by the kidnappers, Marge puts together some more leads which brings her to Jerry's car dealership. He ensures her that there are no cars missing from his lot, but his erratic behavior gives Marge reason to suspect that something fishy is going on. And cut to the day of the ransom exchange. Like I said, there were some holes we need to fill in. It's the day of the ransom exchange, but Wade, Gene's father, insists on delivering the ransom himself. When he arrives at the drop point, Jerry hurriedly trailing behind, Carl, the smaller of the two thugs, is taken by surprise as he is only expecting to see Jerry, so he shoots Wade. Wade returns a shot, grazing Carl's face, so Carl shoots Wade dead. He speeds out of the drop point just before Jerry arrives, discovering Wade's body and no ransom money. Carl heads back to the thug hideaway at the lake, but makes a quick stop to bury Jerry's cut of the ransom money for himself. Meanwhile, Marge heads back to the dealership to ask Jerry some more questions. In a moment of panic, he flees, confirming Marge's suspicions that he was involved in the murders. Going off of a local's tip, Marge heads out to the lake to see if she can find the missing dealership car allegedly being driven by the kidnapping thugs. She lucks out and spots it by a house by the lake, and she discovers the larger of the thugs, Gayer, cramming the body of a smaller thug, Carl, into a wood chipper and raises her gun at the big thug, causing him to attempt to flee. Marge shoots him and is able to apprehend him. Jerry, in an attempt to hide out, is caught by cops at a North Dakota motel. So in the case of Brainerd, Minnesota, ACs are definitely not B. So, as Marge, we've got Francis McDormand, brilliantly as Francis, uh, as Marge Gunderson. Uh, William H. Macy plays Jerry, C. Buscemi is Carl, Peter Starmer is Gayer. Oh my god, John Carroll Lynch is Norm, who's Marge's husband, who's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just so, so good. I also want to mention- Harv- don't forget Harv Presnell as Harv Presnell uh, is Wade. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um and I don't know who plays Stan Grossman, but he's oh yeah, he's great. You which one is Stan, Stan Gro- Which one is Stan oh, Grossman? That's um Wade's uh oh, lawyer the or right Wade's hand guy. Yeah, Larry yeah. Brandenburg. You pass that by Stan so Grossman. Nope. Yeah. It looks what like I a really, pretty sweet deal. <laughs> what I really love one other one character that I really love is the the guy who gives the information about where the um where Carl was like asking for where he can find like an escort. Oh and, yeah. <laughs> he's that shoveling his driveway. <laughs> yeah, that guy seems like he's just like plucked out of 
the the middle of the Midwest and it's just like, hey, just tell us this thing. And it's it, it just seems so natural. It's so it's such a perfect character. Yeah, I I can't I couldn't agree with you more that uh, just that he tells the whole story and then he's done. And what does he just say? End of story. End of story. Yeah, <laughs> there's it. like a pause. Yeah. And yeah. he looked at me and said, do you know what I could get? So, and I love yeah. that. And I said, well, what do you think? I'm, <laughs> I'm going to put in that entire bit yes. right now. Yeah. Yes. Well, so I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedland's last Tuesday. And this little guy's drinking. And he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action, what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah, he says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it. But then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. Okay. Well, thanks a bunch, Mr. Mora. You're right. It's probably nothing. But thanks for calling her in. Sure. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Got a front coming in. Yeah, you got that right. So another amazing uh, scene, well, I guess uh, beat that happens in the, in the movie is everything around uh, Mike Yanagita, who's the, the guy who went to high school with Marge. He sees her in the paper because she, you know, is involved with this murder case and calls her up and they mm-hmm. decide to meet up while she's out of town and he clearly is trying to like get with her and puts on this whole sob story about like marrying this woman they went to high school with and then her dying and it marge very quickly is just like oh no 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 this i've got to well hit the brakes on this the moment when and this is something that's just so wonderful about Frances McDormand's performance throughout the movie. She is always pleasant and polite, even when she is being firm and tough. And she's like, when Mike comes and sits over with her and she, and she goes, I'd, I'd rather you didn't. And he goes and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. And she's just, Oh no, this way I can just see you. And she's that way with, with Jerry, even when, when it's like mm-hmm. he knows he's busted, she knows he's busted. Yeah. But she's just, everything is very reasonable and polite. Mm-hmm. Very Midwest. Mr. Lundegaard, sorry to bother you again. Can I come in? Yeah, no, I'm kind of I'm uh, kind of busy here. I understand. I'll keep it real short then. I'm on my way out of town, but I was wondering, do you mind if I sit down? Carrying a bit of a load here. No. I... Yeah, it's this vehicle I asked you about yesterday. I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay. Are you sure? 
Because, I mean, how do you know? Because of the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know, but, well, how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here? Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and there, uh, there's no... Uh... Sir, you have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. I'm... I'm not... Uh, I, I'm not arguing here. I'm cooperating. And there's no... We're doing all we can. Sir, could I talk to Mr. Gustafson? Mr. Lundegaard. Well, heck, if you wanna, if you wanna play games here, I'm working with you on this thing here, but okay, I'll do a damn luck count. Sir, right now? Yeah, right now. You're darn tootin'. So damned important to you. I'm sorry, sir. Ah, oh, what the Christ. What I was, what I noticed in her performance this time around was I was like, she's like Marge, not Francis Menor, Marge uses that. Right. And I think well, that. Yeah, no, I mm -hmm. just to go off what you're saying, I felt like when she would go into Jerry's office and she'd talk about like asking if she can sit down and kind of using the pregnancy as kind of an excuse and things like that, but which I feel she doesn't like that, ever do. <laughs> right. But I feel like that's kind of a tactic of hers to like make people like put their guards down is by like being so pleasant and being so townsy and folksy. I mean, no, I think it's genuine because you also see that when, but I think she turns it, she just turns it up a little bit. And like you said, she plays, she plays up the pregnancy in his office, which she doesn't, Right. Do, yeah. Any other time? You never really. hear her even really mention it. No, otherwise. no. I mean, other than yeah. when she's when she's like throwing up when she's investigating the crime scene, but she's yeah. still morning like, sickness. She's still like excited for the trip. Oh, triple homicide. Yeah, she's and not not excited that there's a triple homicide, but you could tell that this is a cop who got into being a cop to be a cop to be and, a cop. Well, and, and yeah. it's so perfect and. It, I mean, if you really want to get into, you know, women in film and, and women protagonists and things like that, it's like, it's very specific that she is playing this role. It is very specific the way she plays this role, the way that they played that scene where she goes in and she looks in and there's the the dead body and she kind of goes over to, to throw up and it, your instinct is to think, oh, she's seeing something really grotesque. So she's, and she's a woman, so she's going to throw up. But instead... You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. 
Well, that passed. Yeah? Yeah, now I'm hungry again. Moving on, uh, and, and like, just going on and investigating the crime scene. And it's just like she is a complete professional. She is a capable detective. <laughs> I don't know what her rank is, but, like, she is uh, just a brilliant investigator. And the fact that she is a woman is not what defines her. No. Yeah. She's just, just brilliant. A damn good cop. Yeah. I mean, but even, like, I love loved loved when she's after that scene when they're 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 in the car she's in the car with lou and that guy's fantastic yeah talk about another great supporting performance there and lou's like oh i just thought the dlr plates meant you know they they just didn't finish writing down the number and i love how she's like the term the phrase the phrasing she uses i'm not so sure i agree with your police work it's like it's just another one of those touches that helps develop this character and show you that this character has been like, she's tired of just reading about it in the manual. It comes mm-hmm. back with the, he's fleeing the interview. It's oh, like, he's I fleeing ima- the interview. Oh, for Pete's sake. Oh, for Pete's sake, he's fleeing the interview. He's fleeing the interview. Uh, oh, I get an outside line here. Um, uh, I imagine her like being at the at the police academy. I do not want to get on a police academy we tangent. Won't, we so won't, I'm saying we won't. the I imagine her being at the academy and reading about that situation or role playing that situation. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's happening and he's fleeing the interview. He's yeah. fleeing the interview. It's like it's this mix of like the balls on him. I'm gonna go get him. And Oh, this is this is happening. This situation, this scenario that I've only ever read about is happening. Yeah, and I love that about her character. And I love, and it's it's also I think the the Mike Yanagita scene plays into that because it is the one scene where you see her somewhat objectified. Right. Yes. Well, but 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 by somebody who is like very, as we learn, as we find out, you know, oh, scumbag, not he's well. A schmuck. Well, he's he's a schmuck, but he's also like not well, doesn't she? She talks to that other person well, she went to right. high school I, with, and yes, I, I mean, uh, who's and they're to like, say? yeah, Mike was in a home and everything. Like Mike's mm-hmm. living with his parents. Like Mike, Mike was like things went really bad with him. Yeah. Um, well, so with with that scene with Mike and that whole segment really shows you, you know, it shows you more about the person that Marge is, her husband, who is very wonderful to her, and uh, he is a painter. I believe that there was some unshown backstory that he allegedly like was a cop, but they decided that. I think that this is just something in IMDb trivia. Yeah, I saw that, and here's why I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of call bullshit on that because the theory was that they met working on the force when in the scene with right. Mike Yanagita, it's kind of established that they all went to high school. They together. went to high school together. Right. So you went yeah. and married well, Norm, son of a Gunderson. <laughs> yeah. So, but here's the thing: is it's like you know she's with this guy, and he's in a very different line of work than she's in. And, you know, his big accomplishment, which comes at the very end, which is how the movie ends, is talking about how this bird painting of his, or is it a duck or something, ends up winning the prize and ends up on a three-cent stamp. And she's telling him, 
how great that is and why he shouldn't be upset that it's not a, like a full stamp because and why people need, people those need them yes yeah. and <laughs> she's she's so good at you know being that support system for somebody whose line of work isn't as thrilling as the life that she has during the course of this movie and you know the mike yanagita scene to me is very much just like she's wondering like what would her life be like if she did take a different path and ended up with somebody a little bit different and quickly realizes, oh, no, 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 not for me. Oh, you see, I don't I don't know that I I don't know that I saw it that way because I just don't, I one thing I never get from her is discontent. I don't I wouldn't say discontent, but like curiosity. Is that why you think she arranges? Is that why you think she meets up with him? I think so. Because I always thought it was just like, oh, she's being nice. Like, oh, she's just too nice to to say, no, I won't meet up with you. Well, he calls her at what, like quarter to 11 yeah. at night. And and she's just like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And no, I thought that she just was meeting up with him to like- mm. Be, be nice like hey i'm i'm in town yeah but then what purpose would it really have in the story well i think because it's the one time that you see her out of out of like out entirely of out of the con out of uniform but well mm-hmm. you, i mean in the beginning when when she first gets the call about the murder but but it's it's almost like every other scene where she's not like on duty gets interrupted by mm-hmm. her having to go on duty. Like she gets called, like she gets, they get woken up and she wakes up and she has to go in and Norm makes her eggs. She yeah. barely touches the eggs. She has to go. Um, He comes in, you know, and she comes back and th- this is where I think that theory comes from is because Norm's already sitting in her office with Arby's. Yeah. They're just kind of chilling. He brought her lunch. Good dude. Yeah. Good dude. Yeah, exactly. He brought her Arby's. I well, love she, John Carroll Lynch. John Carroll Lynch is great. Yeah. Um, in, in many things, but especially killer, maybe this was, this was the first thing that I really remembered it from. Yeah. This was, this was the movie that like, after I saw him in things after that, I was like, oh, it's Francis McDormand's husband from Fargo. Yeah. So it's, it's Norm. It's Norm. But she also, but, but she brings him the night crawlers. So there is such a, they're like, they're, it's such a partnership. No, totally. between them. And that's I like that you pointed that out at the end that it really it ends with her being, you know, supporting him after mm-hmm. she's done and gone through all of this that yeah. we've seen her go through. Mm-hmm. They announced it. They announced it. Yeah. So? Three cent stamp. You're Mallard? Yeah. That's terrific. It's just a three cent. It's terrific. Hoffman's blue winged teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent. Oh, for peace. Of course they do. Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps. Yeah? When they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones. Yeah. I guess. It's terrific. I'm so proud of you, Norm. And it's a reminder that yeah, he's still doing his thing, and he doesn't he doesn't worry about her. 
no. at all. He doesn't dwell. He's he doesn't. He's not like, hey, I'm worried things are getting to. No, he just yeah, kind she of just he brings her down lunch. A, a guy shoving someone else into a wood chipper. Yeah, like <laughs> I know, but does he even know that? You know, it's like, does she even talk about that? <laughs> I would say probably not. He'd probably have to read about it in the paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So their 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 relationship in it is so is so wonderful. But I think if we're going to talk about brilliant performances, so Frances McDormand won the Academy Award that year, Did very much deservedly so, very much deservedly so, and very much undeservedly, William H Macy did not. Now. William H. Macy so was good. now, as you said before, he's kind of he's the one who gets things in motion. Mm-hmm. He was not nominated in the best actor category, which when I looked at the nominees for that year, I thought, well, that's smart because oh, you think it was more of a tactical move to put him in supporting. Well, because best actor that year, it was like. Jer- like Tom Cruise for Jerry Maguire, and oh, mm. it was like like people Woody Harrelson for People versus Larry Flint, yeah. Um, and it was all these like you know not that Best Supporting Actor was Bush League, but um, no, no. It, I mean, it makes sense. You know, he is the person who sets the story forward, but it really is Marge's movie. Yeah, it uh, and Francis McDormand's. And Francis McDormand's yeah. movie. Fran- and yeah. and I but I also think that with William H. Macy, so one I mean, of course, like Cuba Gooding Jr. beat him for the Oscar for right. Jerry Maguire. Yeah. And, you know, show me the money. So but what I think part of what worked against William H. Macy is I mean, yeah, he had been kicking around. People, you know, you, you knew him from things. You were like, oh, it's that it's whatever him from ER or whatever else he was on. Well, he was in was it the client as the doctor? Yeah. Remember? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> it's like so a five line character. Right. But then here he is and here's this guy and he's so believable. Mm hmm. And the accent, the way that his voice goes up when he's in the interview with her is, I'm trying to tell you. And mm-hmm. when he's on the phone with the guy trying to get the numbers, I'll, I'll fax him over to you. And, yeah. And oh, uh, yeah. Oh, God. And the. Man, talk about – and this is why I just put him as a schmo because the last time you see him in the film is when he is just pathetically being grabbed and he looks so small being arrested. Just a sec. Let me tell you why he's a schmuck. He sets up this whole scheme to have his wife, sweet, sweet Jean, kidnapped. And it seems like he doesn't even think about how their son is going to react to it. Because when Wade, I think it was Wade who's just like, what did Scotty say? No, and it's Stan Grossman. It's Stan, Stan Grossman. Grossman. Of course it's Stan yes. Grossman. So yeah, and, he's, and the look on his face is like, oh, I hadn't even thought about my like 13-year-old accordion playing son. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, he he's a schmuck because he does not th- he does these things without thinking about how they're going to impact 
the people that are important to him. His wife, who ends up dead, and his son. He doesn't realize that his son is going to lose his mother, but like, still, he's going to believe that his mother got kidnapped and that he's in this like impossible situation. So he is a schmuck. I, I, feel, I see. I guess I feel like it's almost giving him too much credit to call him a schmuck. Because I feel like a schmuck gets one over on someone every now and again. And he just he strikes out because he he does this whole thing. He he engages in this whole scheme to get money to make this deal happen. Right. But here's the thing. I'm going to tell you why more about my definition between schmuck and schmo. A schmuck is somebody who does things to people. Mm -hmm. A schmo is somebody who has things happen to them. Okay, like so, like the dude is a schmo because he ends up in this situation. All the dude he, wanted was to get his rug, rug all back. All he wanted to yes. do was get his rug back. Yeah. And Jerry is a schmuck because he caused all of these things to happen to all of these people selfishly. Okay. Yes. Now, and I and this and now I'm not defending the character, but I'm saying this is a strength both in the writing and in the performance is that they do just enough to him that you feel bad for him. And maybe this is why I'm leaning towards Schmo. And he, I, I I have examples. Well, before you go on, I will say, if this is a Venn diagram, he's right in the middle. He is a schmuck. He is a Schmo. He is a no good Nick. So the question is, why does he ultimately feel the need to do this? And I think you see it in his relationship with Wade. Right. And when he's Wade- completely castrated. Well, when Wade says to him, Gene and Scotty never need to worry. Right. And not to mention, and then when he find when he goes in, when he when when he goes in and they're like, Oh yeah, it's a real good deal. Well, what's your finder's fee? And that scene when he goes out to his car with the ice scraper mm. and he just, I mean, when I think about watching this movie, sometimes the reason why I don't watch it is that scene because I Feel that, and having having grown up in New Jersey, where we have some icy Cold winters, climate, yeah, and having been, and I mean, yeah, it's not the it's not the Midwest, but you know, having had experience just with that frustrating, like trying to scrape the ice off your windshield, and already being really pissed off when he just goes ballistic and just smashes that thing to pieces, I feel that, and I'm not, and I don't feel sympathy i guess i i guess i feel sympathy i guess i do feel a little bit of sympathy i don't feel empathy for him And I think that that's also, you know, talking about Marge and her Midwestern kindness. Uh, you also have Jerry and kind of like a, this very frustrated person with a lot of pent up feelings who hides behind this sheen of Midwestern kindness when he's at the car dealership. 
uh, you know, and he's talking to people on the phone. He hides and behind the true coat. Through. The true coat. It's the yeah. true coat. Oh, it's yeah. It's the true coat. Yeah. He's always blaming somebody else. But here is the thing about what this movie and specifically Jerry, you know, William H. Macy's character, and then also the television series Fargo in each season of that. And we're going to talk more about it soon. But what they're all about, because the television series, it's an anthology series. Each season is a completely different story with completely different characters and different eras. But what each of those seasons do or are about and what also this movie is about is what will people do for money? Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing that sets everything into motion. I'm just thinking about, and I mean, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but I'm definitely, I'm the only season of the series that I've seen is season two. Okay. And I guess I'm just trying to think of does everything in that do, do all the motivations come back to money? Because I'm thinking of some of the characters and and well, I will that, so. I will tell you this. I uh, I uh, I read an interview with the creator Noah Hawley. Is that his name? Oh yeah. I want to look yeah. that up real quick. So because I want to make sure that I'm getting his name right. I'm almost. Noah Hawley. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Uh, he said, he did say that. Oh, that was what he and, said. That yeah, was what he so said. Okay. I am taking yeah, him I guess, his word you know what? You know what? Yeah, sorry. Now that I'm thinking about it. No, because I was thinking because of the- Because I think um, that, and, and we'll get into this, but I think that Kirsten, yeah. Kirsten Dunst's character sees opportunities to to profit off of her situation. But anyway- Well, it was Jesse Plum, that, there's money involved in all of them. Yeah. There's money involved. Right. So before we get to that- uh, and we're we're welcome, of course, to talk more about the plot of this movie and the brilliance. But I'd like to talk about the first time that I saw this movie. Oh, nice. This is a true story. The events depicted in this story took place in New Jersey around 1998. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed out of respect for the guilty the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. So, I'd say it's around 1998. I think that you ha- you were in college. You graduated from high school, what, 95? Yeah. Yeah, so during some point when you were in college, I was 14, 15, something like that. And our parents were out of town. And you decided to throw a party. And our, our brother Scott was not home that night. And you threw a party with uh, a, a bunch of your friends. Mm-hmm. And one of your friends gave me my very first beer, which I nursed the entire night as I sat on a desk chair in your childhood bedroom and on your 13-inch television popped in the VHS tape of Fargo. I was maybe 10 inches away from the screen, eyes glued to Because it was letterboxed. <laughs> yeah, you, it was on a lot smaller screen. On a 13-inch screen. Yeah, yeah uh, and, uh, but I was mesmerized. I was just, it was one of the first times where I saw a movie and was just like, Whoa. Like, you know, of course, I was I was young and didn't understand so much of it, but I knew that I was watching something different and special. And I nursed my seven ounce Rolling Rock bottle of beer 
the entire time. Probably didn't finish half of it, but mostly because I was just like so engrossed in Fargo and I was just loving it. And I I just remember that that evening so vividly. And uh, I'm pretty sure you got in trouble because you put the beer bottles in the recycling bin and oh. our parents were just like, uh, hello. Yeah. And I didn't get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. In in trouble. I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely got caught, I guess. So, but yeah, so it's really interesting because you say you were, you were 14 and I'm thinking about. I'm trying to think of like, I don't remember the exact age, but it would have to be around that well, time. No, it's just what I'm thinking is when I was four. I was 14 when I saw a movie that made me feel the same way. That was the first time I saw Clockwork Orange. Oh, okay. I mean, I wasn't nursing a Red Rock during, or uh, sorry, Rolling, Rolling Rock, Rock during a, you know, during a party. But I could, I also, I do remember my first time seeing Fargo. Yeah. And yeah. I, I know I've, I've been going into the Midwestern accents uh, lately, just also because I've been, wa- I was watching the movie and I was watching the show. So it's like, that's it. When Fargo, Fargo was released in limited limited release in March 1996, and I went on spring break. And one of the theaters, one of the few theaters that was showing it in Jersey was at the Menlo Park Mall. Okay. So I went by myself to the Menlo Park Mall one day and saw Fargo because my friend Dave Kelly, I, I think, had already seen it and okay. was raving about it so i went to go see it at, just by myself and the way that you're describing watching it uh letterboxed on the 13 inch screen mm-hmm. it, it's amazing because it's so close to how i was you know kind of thinking of describing it seeing it on a big screen and uh-huh. then i was just captivated and to see it on on a big screen with those those landscapes and especially that oh, like that opening white open yeah song. yeah and with the and the music is so perfect music is great and i can remember sitting in that theater in march 1996 mm-hmm. so nearly 25 years ago but like i remember just being enthralled and just feeling like uh you know there are very few movies that you can really look at and say that was just perfect that was well, that was everything it needed to be this might have been something that i read in like imdb trivia but allegedly when siskel and ebert were watching this film to review it i think it was siskel turned to ebert and said this is why we love movies this is why we love movies yeah, yeah. exactly and, and it's and- so appropriate fargo is the best movie the corn brothers have ever made a quirky infectious american masterpiece well you know last year back in january i said i didn't think i'd expect to see a better film more year than crumb yeah and i didn't it was a real good call even you put it second on your list yeah well i'm gonna make the same call here now in march okay because there won't be a better film than this i mean this is you called it a masterpiece mm-hmm. i'll go on a limb and say that too and i want to even go further and say this that the cone brothers now if you look at blood simple mm-hmm. raising arizona and barton fink mm-hmm. these guys are creating one fantastic original piece of work every single time mm-hmm. these are these guys deserve to be known with some of the finest directors that have worked in motion pictures mm-hmm. and there isn't a, a dull moment here there isn't an unoriginal moment they have a very precise way of of dialogue 
that is accurate. It yeah. is the way people talk, well, as well I, as the speech yeah. pattern of, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, and all that. Yeah. They've got the words right, well, They too. have the words exactly right. And you know what I like, too, was the stylistic freedom they gave themselves. This is a very violent movie. It's yes. a very funny movie. At the end, there's some poetry and some uh -oh, whimsy. There, there was stuff in this movie about the minutia of the routine of a long marriage. Yes. There is stuff in there about yes. two partners that don't get father along. Father and son, father-in-law and son-in-law. Oh, that's oh my fabulous. God. And the, how about, what about the son that goes off to McDonald's, gets and, up from the dinner oh, table? But listen, I mean, they're just they one detail have, after they another. They even have the, yeah. the, the accountant assistant to the big boss. I mean, that's mm -hmm. very clever writing there. You know, a family business, and there's the loyal helper there yeah, yeah, who yeah, hates yeah. the son-in-law. Yeah. Uh, oh. son it's funny, because I remember that. I remember that at the... Menlo Park Mall, there was the Suncoast Motion Picture Company. Mm -hmm. So pour one out for Suncoast. Yeah. Um, I remember that I got, I, I bought at Suncoast, first of all, the theatrical issue movie poster for that. Mm -hmm. And it is it is long gone, but I, I did have it. And I also, so that VHS, that Letterboxd VHS right. was the collector's edition oh. and it, <laughs> and it came with a snow globe of right. the wood chipper scene. Yes. Oh, and do I, you still have that? If I do, it is boxed up somewhere. Yeah. I had it. I That's did have it one. for the longest time, but I have a feeling that one is, is gone. So I, while we're on the topic of Suncoast video, I, I was living in Philadelphia when the, the Suncoast in the like mall in Philadelphia was closing and they were selling, you know, everything as these stores just do when they're, you know, about to just completely disappear. And I bought the, geez, it must've been like four foot by four foot square. Like, you know, when you look up at the top of a Suncoast video by the, like where the ceiling meets the wall and they just have like these square movie images all over. I got the, uh, Tom Cruise from Top Gun, like hanging out of the 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 jet with like the thumbs up, and uh, I carried that home with me on the. I think I bought it for, like twenty five bucks. I brought it home with me like on the on the subway, and uh, <laughs> I uh, you know I couldn't bring that with me when I moved across the country, but uh, man, that thing that thing was great. I loved it. <laughs> I I remember that. Yeah. Um, and not to go off of Fargo too much heading back to Fargo I should say what is also a tie between the film and the television series is that the worst person in each story always thinks that they're the victim and I absolutely see that in each of these seasons and I know that you're mostly familiar with season two I'm going to break down the plots of, of each of the seasons. And, and as we are recording this season four is uh, still airing. So we're in the middle of season four and I'm loving it. And the TV series, I guess for me, it's kind of like an, they're, they're adaptations. I mean, the first season is, is closer to the actual plot of the, of the movie Fargo, but the, there's a lot of elements of other Coen Brothers movies that fall into a lot of the other ones. And I feel like they are adaptations of like the feeling you get when watching a Coen Brothers movie. And uh, that's something that I really love about them. And they really do give a lot of respect to the the Coen Brothers. And um, yeah, I mean, should I start getting into the each of those seasons? I mean, uh, 
They'll be brief. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you want to go into into each season, but like in regards to references to the Coen Brothers movies, I have so many of those from season two. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to give like a, yeah. a very quick plot summary of each one and mentioning uh, who the characters are. So like I said, season one is very similar story-wise to the movie. Um, So this one, it takes place in 2006 and it follows Hitman. And I'm taking these, by the way, uh, these are just from the Fargo Wikipedia page. So that I I just copied and pasted here, but uh, it follows Hitman Lorna Malvo, who's played by William Robert Thornton, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, who stops at a hospital in Bemidji, Minnesota, following a car accident and influences local mild-mannered insurance salesman Lester Nygaard, who's Martin Freeman, with his violent and deceptive ways. Their meeting sets forth a series of murders throughout the city. Meanwhile, Deputy Molly Solverson, who's played by Allison Tolman, who's excellent, of Bemidji and Officer Gus Grimley, Colin Hanks, of Duluth, uh, they attempt to solve several crimes across the state that they believe may be linked to Malvo and Nygaard. If I was any kind of man, I'd have shown that Sam what's what. Sam? Yes. The bully in high school is a bully now. So why didn't you? Join what's what? Well, his... He had his sons with him and... You let a man beat you in front of his children to send them a message? No, that's not... Heck. Just... Heck. In my experience, if you let a man break your nose... The next time he tries to break your spine. Sent no way. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think. It just, I, I guess I uh, embarrassed him in front of his boys. You embarrassed him? Yeah, by, uh, he, he was telling me about a time where he and my wife, they were... Uh, but he, he didn't know she was my wife is the thing. And uh, what I told him... Look, this man slept with your wife, and you're worried about embarrassing him. Uh-huh, not slept. No, they, they didn't. Uh, it, he said it was just... She has soft hands, see, and uh, I guess... Uh, Mr. we're not friends. I mean, maybe we will be someday. But I gotta say, if that were me in your position... I would have killed that man. Is the thing. No, that is the thing. Well, heck. 
I mean, okay. Okay. But what am I supposed to do? Heck, you're so sure about it, maybe you should just kill him for me. You're asking me to kill this man. No, that was, uh, I, I was joking. Mr. Nygaard? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, one, one second. We, 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 we're just two fellas talking, right? We're just blowing up steam. Sir, it's real busy. Like I said, one second. Sam. Yes. No, just, just one second. That is not. Sir? Just one word. Yes or no? Sir, I'm going to give you a spot. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming for Pete's sake. I think that this might be the only one where there's a direct link between characters in the seasons. Because in season two, um, Molly Silverson, Alison Tolman's character, this focuses on uh, a story involving her father back in 1979, who's played by Patrick Wilson. So... Uh, season two is in 1979. Beautician Peggy Blumquist, Kirsten Dunst, and her husband butcher Ed Blumquist, Jesse Plemons of Laverne, Minnesota, 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 cover up her hit and run and murder of Rye Gerhardt, Kieran Culkin, son of Floyd Gerhardt, Gene Smart, the matriarch of the Gerhardt crime family in Fargo, North Dakota. Meanwhile, state trooper Lou Silverson, Patrick Wilson, and his father-in-law sheriff, Hank Larson, who's Ted Danson, investigate a triple homicide at a local diner connected to Rye. Personally, not sure why you're making all this effort. Can I buy the shop? Be my own boss. And? And what? That's the American dream. What's the point? Just gonna die anyway. What do you mean? Camus says, knowing we're all gonna die makes life a joke. So what, you just, you just give up? You could kill yourself, get it over with. Okay, that, that's not... I mean, come on, you, you, gotta, you gotta try. No. You go to school, you get a job, you start a family. Die. That's, would you please stop saying that? I'm gonna live a long, long life I mean, my, my grandpa was 96. At which point he did what? Died. Noreen. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna go in the back now. Away from this nonsense. Would you please let me know if Bud's back? I will. Unless I'm dead. So I like how they did have the connection between the father and daughter between those seasons. I thought that was really nice. Um, I don't remember because it's been a while since I saw the third season, but I want to say I think the third season might be my favorite. Yeah, you've said that before. I just started it. So, oh, OK. Um, So yeah. this one takes place in 2010. St. Cloud probation officer Ray Stussy, played by Ewan McGregor, and his parolee girlfriend Nikki Swango, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Dream of a better, wealthier life. To achieve this, they attempt to steal a valuable vintage stamp from Ray's more successful older brother, Emmett, 
also played by Ewan McGregor, the self-proclaimed parking lot king of Minnesota. However, their plans backfire and the couple soon has to hide their involvement in two deaths, including the stepfather of former Eden Valley police chief Gloria Burgle, played by Carrie Coon. Meanwhile, Emmett wishes to pay back a shady company he borrowed money from two years ago, but the mysterious company and its employees, led by VM Varga, played by David Thewlis, who is chilling in this show, and Yuri Gerga, who's Gorgon Bogdan, uh, they have other plans. Um, it is, first of all, the names in all of these, uh, the Fargo seasons, are always Chef's Kiss. So well, good. Coen Brothers movies. Coen Brothers movies, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got Gustafsson, Gunderson, Ol- Lundegaard. Oh, Lundegaard, Olmsted. Olmsted. Blomquist. Uh, the names Gerhard. are so good. Ger- Gerhard. Gerhard. I, I thought, yeah. Any, I mean, I'll, we'll, we can get back to it because I know you're you're rolling through the synopsis, synopses here. Synopses. So. Yeah. I'm not making you a partner in my company. You just blew in on the wind Thursday. I'm calling Cy. Ah, and here's me thinking you were the boss. In the favelas of Brazil, there are six-year-olds with glocks. They rove in packs, stealing whatever they can find. Mexican lowlives stream into this country like wolves, eyeing our women and children. In the Congo, a family of six live on 10 cents a day. You turn on the TV, what do you see? Boat people. Mass migration. You're living in the age of the refugee, my friend. Look, if you won't take back your money, well, I can't make you. You see it, don't you? Millions of people bought houses they couldn't afford and now they're living on the streets. 85% of the world's wealth is controlled by 1% of the population. What do you think is going to happen when those people wake up and realise you've got all their money? Hey, I just charge for parking. Oh, you think they're going to ask questions when they come with their pitchforks and their torches? You live in a mansion. You drive a $90,000 car. It's a lease through the company. Look at me. Look at me. This is a $200 suit. I wear a second-hand tie, a fly couch. Not because I can't afford first, because I'm smart. So look at you, and look at me, and tell me who's the richer. All right. I feel like this is a trick question. There's an accounting coming, Mr. Stussy. And you know I'm right. Mongol hordes descending. What are you doing to insulate yourself and your family? You think you're rich. You've no idea what rich means. Rich is a fleet of private planes filled with decoys to mask your scent. It's a bunker in Wyoming and another in Gestad. So that's action item 
One, the accumulation of wealth, and I mean wealth, not money. What's action item number two? To use that wealth to become invisible. So season four, and I would recommend to anybody to watch the first episode of of this one, even just like the first half of the first episode of the season. And what's also great about these seasons is you don't have to see one to understand another. They're completely standalone. So in 1950, the Cannon Limited, led by Loy Cannon, played by Chris Rock, threatened the reign of the Fada family as the ruling crime organization in Kansas City, Missouri. As a condition of negotiations between the two groups, the head families honor a tradition of trading the youngest sons between the two households. While the Fada family is initially led by Donatello Fada, who's played by Tommaso Ragno, Ragno, uh, unusual circumstances involving a nurse named Oretta Mayflower, played by Jesse Buckley, who's in the new... Um, the latest Charlie Kaufman movie. I'm blanking on the name that also with Jesse Plemons. Uh, she's so good. I'm uh, thinking about to, ending it. Is that it? I'm thinking about ending it. That's yeah. right. Uh, good. Very good. Um, so uh, Aretta Mayflower led Donatello Fada's death, which results in a power struggle between the Fada brothers, Josto, Jason Schwartzman, and Gatano, who's Salvatore Esposito, who's so good. Meanwhile, uh, Ethel Rita Pearl Smutney, who's played by uh, this girl, Amiri Crutchfield. She's great. Daughter of a white father, Andrew Bird, and African-American mother, Angie White, who own a mortuary, narrates parts of the series while her family experiences financial hardship, leading them to seek a predatory loan from the Canon Limited organization. The Smutney household is further challenged when Ethel Rita's aunt, Zelmar Roulette, played by Karen Aldridge, escapes from prison with companion Swanee Caps, played by Kelsey Chow, and seeks refuge at the Smutney home while U.S. Marshal Dick Wickware, Timothy Oliphant, pursues the two bank robbers. My History Report by Etherita Pearl Smutney. Frederick Douglass, once intoned. I stand before you as a thief and a robber. I stole this head, these limbs, this body from my master, and I ran off with them. What'd you do this time? I've been maligned. My point being, the moment our feet touched American soil, we were already criminals. But this report isn't about my history. It's about our history. Kansas City, Missouri. In the beginning, there were the Hebrews, and they ran the underworld. Then came the Irish. To keep the peace, the boss of each family gave offer of his youngest son in trade. Relax, boy chick. The thinking was, by raising your enemy's offspring, an understanding could be reached. And peace maintained. Put some hair on your bollocks. 
See, the problem wasn't that I was disreputable. What'd you do this time? Punch Dolores Desparma with my eye, of course. I was, in fact, a student of exceptional virtue and high achievement. The problem was the only thing worse than a disreputable Negro was an upstanding one. And so I endured the slings and arrows of small-minded folk who, in their narrow thoughts, imagined they could teach me a lesson. Logic dictates that in every fight, there is a winner and a loser. But this is a history report. And what does history tell us? Peace don't last for long. The casts in these in these they, seasons of Fargo, all-star casts. It's season like all of, two. Season two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, season two is great. So let's well, start. Let, let's start. Hold on. So first of all, not only does season two feature Nick Offerman, Nick Offerman plays right. a character named Carl Weathers. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. That's so funny. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. So, I mean, so you, all right. So, season two, first of all, you've got Kieran Culkin, pre succession Kieran Culkin. I mean, Kieran Culkin's been around since well, he was a baby. Uh, yeah. But I feel yeah. like succession really like got him, like his star power just like rose, rose, rose. He had a few moments. Like, I remember Igby Goes Down, Igby also goes 2002. Down. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, he's great in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Um, yes. But he he's very very good in uh, in Fargo. As, he's great in that yeah. you've got uh, it was Jeffrey Donovan of Burn Notice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who plays one of the Garretts? Gene Smart, who mm, is so good. amazing and just a like a chame- She's one of those chameleonic actors. Totally. Totally. Yeah, and. God, who else? It was it was so Nick Hartman, uh, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Jesse Dunst. Plemons, Jesse um, Plemons, never disappoints. No, but Ted Danson, Ted, Ted Danson is in everything, and yeah. he's fantastic in this. And Patrick Wilson, Kristen Milioti, who, by the way, I've never seen an, another actress other than Talia Shire that I would say has a Talia Shire quality. But <laughs> if they ever remake Rocky. Oh, Kristen Milioti is your Adrian. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, and then speaking of Talia Shire, you've got Jason Schwartzman uh, in, season, in season four. Um, but also but, this, this, the 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 Coen Brothers references, and they're done in such a subtle mm, way. Yeah. In in season two, I, I caught references to um, Lebowski. They a lot of the they use a lot of the songs, but different uh-huh. versions of them. Uh, there's a couple of lines from Lebowski. They, they don't hit you over the head with it for sure. No, no. But there's also like there's this this great Miller's Cross like Miller's Crossing tribute, but it fits so much into the scene. It fits so well into the context that you don't really realize it until. It's you're in the middle of it and you're like, oh, oh, they're doing Miller's Crossing. Oh, yeah. And I, and I feel like, uh, you know, having watched Miller's Crossing last night, I felt like there was just a very tonal, uh, a similar tone to the fourth season. You know, it's organized crime mm-hmm. families. Um, and, I'm curious. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, no, it's just like, you know, competing organized criminals, <laughs> organized criminals, yeah. uh, organized crime organizations. And um also in season four, there's a wonderful scene 
that takes place in a bank. And I feel like there's a nice like Hudsucker proxy like wink with like a one of the pneumatic tubes. And uh, and I don't know. It's just Uh. like you can if you're if you're not thinking about it, you don't notice it. But if you're looking out for them, you totally notice them. And that's what that's what works about them. Yeah, I wasn't even looking out for it until I I think it was the oh, no, it wasn't the Miller's Crossing. It was at the end of an episode. There was a version of I am a man of constant sorrow. From oh, was it really? Where art thou? And it was used and I was like, oh, OK, that's interesting. And then the next episode, it was just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Oh, of course. And then by the and then next thing you know, uh, you know, someone's walking someone out into the woods and, you know, they're going to kill them. And Danny Boy starts playing. And oh, <laughs> see, now I need to go back and watch. this is season two. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I just have to go back and watch it. I, I'm I was telling you, really season th- season three it. really did it for me. OK, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm into season three now. So, yeah. And but one thing and one one last thing I want to say about the series to its credit and one thing that it does that the Coen brothers tend to do really well in their movies is and it it's even more effective in the in the TV series because they have more time is you have got such a wide range of characters mm-hmm. that really go beyond just a two dimensional character. So like Ted Danson's Absolutely. character, for example, Nick Offerman's character. Has this, you know, and also one of the nice things, I really like the setting of 1979 because Mm -hmm. some of the older characters were World War II vets, whereas some of the younger adult characters were Vietnam vets. So there was a lot of that talk in there and it lent a lot of the characters more dimension and gravitas. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, you know, we talk a lot, you know, when we're talking about reviving these properties and so every now and then it'll come up with the idea to like bring it back as more of like an anthology series, exactly the way that they did Fargo. And I remember when I first saw that they were doing a Fargo TV series, I saw the like ad in LA, like on a bus stop or something. And I was just like, ah, really? And I am so pleased that I was wrong. Well, What's except up? that this wasn't the first time there was a Fargo TV series. Well, it wasn't the first time that That's there was one true, that was going to happen. So, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was definitely a pilot with Edie Falco as Marge Gunderson. Right. Um, and it never, it, I, I don't even think the pilot really, I think it aired, but not in a, uh, it didn't air like on the network. Got it. So it's kind of like a Driving Miss Daisy situation. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like it's it was minus the laugh track, minus the just disaster dumpster fire nature <laughs> of it. Uh, well, I mean, I'm I'm really pleased with how they did this, and you know, hats off to Noah Halley for making this happen. And you know, season four is one that you know production was put on hold for pandemic reasons, and they ah. were like one of the first productions to resume. And uh, they managed to to finish it up safely. And um, I'm very grateful for that. Also, I want to give them credit for casting non-actor Andrew Bird in a like central role. Oh, wait, when you said Andrew Bird before, I thought you meant it was the character's name. And I was like, oh, that's funny. No, his name is Thurman Smutney, which oh, is so a great Andrew name. Andrew Bird 
the musician, the musician, the, music, the artist is plays playing. a mortician. Yeah. Okay. Name is right. Thurman Smutney, which is kind of like, yeah, you can see it. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think what, so what it really does, and and as I was watching season two and, and also making some comparisons to The Sopranos, what I realized is uh-huh. that what, what they did so well with this series is take the film and say, well, let's build a series that explores the you know whether it's based it how wet, based in realism it is i don't know but it goes into the history of organized crime in the midwest which right. no one well, ever really talks about organ well yeah organized crime and also like just really crime because i feel like season three isn't really so much of an organized crime thing um nor is season one seasons two and four for sure but they are they're they're stories about you know showing that Crazy crime stories can happen anywhere. Well, and I, I would like, go for such as Bemidji. Is it Minnesota? Bemidji, Minnesota. I I would go further to say that the further you get away from the cities, the crazier it gets. Well, yeah, and I mean, going back to the movie, and, yeah. you have like we were saying these like sprawling snow covered white landscapes. And, you know, you hear about a lot of these crime stories happening in cities. And mm-hmm. here, there's it's just the complete opposite of that. And man, oh man, is it crazy. The yeah. things that people are doing to make a little bit of money. But it's also, I mean, you know, that's why you have, you know, these are the, the areas that are really hit hard by the opioid epidemic. Uh, you know, hit hard by, you know, when the, the economy you do have that that there's that air of desperation sure mm-hmm. that definitely uh that definitely permeates and i did want to point out i know i said earlier like okay so i like that the coen brothers movies don't really have a connection have connections between them except for that the big lebowski which was their next film after this mm. made a couple of callbacks to fargo for instance uh pancake house yeah, so Peter Stamari yeah. uh, finally gets to eat at the Pancake House, right? In in Big Lebowski, and you also have Bunny Lebowski, who's from a farm in Minnesota. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, isn't her last keep... name also like Gunderson or Gustafson or something like that? Yeah, yeah, it's something I like look that. that up. And how do you keep them on the farm once they've seen Carl Hungus? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lines in that movie. I mean, among many, many wonderful lines, but that's, and another thing, by the way, that I commend the series on is the, like the, the dialogue and also the style Mm -hmm. of it is really just a tribute to the Coens to. Oh, sorry. Her birth name is Fawn Knudsen. Knudsen. Why did I think that it was Gustafsson or Knudsen? Knudsen. Um, So. And and another thing, and I think maybe it's just because I recently listened to an interview with Barry Sonnenfeld, who was the cinematographer mm. on Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing. and Miller's Crossing. Yeah, those were those were the three he did. Yeah, and I think that the Coens have a signature style, but I think part of that signature style was established with Barry Sonnenfeld, and that it's sure it's something that has been. Contain. They've had other. They've worked with like Roger Deakins. I think is the cinematographer that they worked with on on Fargo. Well, I mean, love Roger Deakins. Yeah, 
But I like that even though they like they work with these great cinematographers who definitely have their own visions, that there's this signature style. And I feel like a lot of it also has to do with close-ups of faces that have interesting expressions or tics. Oh, <laughs> like you see, yeah. like, like, think about the guy. Think about the guy who Jerry's trying to rip off with the true coat uh, oh. in his office. The mm-hmm. first time you see him in the office you know, and, and the guy's, you know what you are, Mr. Lundergaard? You're a liar. You're yeah. a fucking liar. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, like yeah. That guy, he's got those the, the, the facial tics and he's like squinting. I feel like that's such a, a signature. Um, Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading with the really like almost bulging eyes and like yeah. his facial muscles are just working overtime. He's so good in that. Um, you know, I always think of Billy Bob Thornton's eyes with the man who wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like, one I haven't watched in a while. I want to revisit. I I have wanted to revisit that. It's not streaming anywhere that I can find. And That's too bad. I remember him being so good. James Gandolfini as well. Oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, so what else your, can you say about the Coen brothers? Well, what's your favorite Coen brothers movie? Oh, that's really hard. I know. Because there's kind of one for every feeling that you have. One that matches any kind of vibe that you're feeling. Overall, um, imagine you're on Twitter and it and the tweet says only one can stay. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do love Hudsucker Proxy. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I have a lot of love for it. Uh, I feel like saying Big Lebowski is kind of a cop out, but it's like kind of true. Uh, same with Raising Arizona. Oh, that's a really hard one. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say Hudsucker Proxy. How about you? So... Yeah, I'll just say Lebowski, yeah. but but it's not an easy decision because I Definitely think about not. so many other. It's easier for me to pick which which ones I could do without because I I could count that on one hand and have fingers left over. I mean, if you could say, if I could just say the Hobie Doyle, um, Ray Fine scene in Hail Caesar, that would be. All I need. Merrily we dance, 27 Apple, take two. Action. Oh, Monty, come join me on the divan. Seems Allegra's a no-show, which is simply a bore. But I'll partner you and Bridge. Why the pout? Would that? It were so simple. Cut. Very good. Very good. Um, come, come. All right, let's try this. Your line, just say it as I said. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would the tattoo so simple? Would that it was so simple? Would that it was so simple? Would that it was so simple? My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said it. Yes. Would that it was so simple? 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 Watch my mouth. Would that it was so simple? Would that it was so simple? Keep your head still. Would that it was so simple? 
Would that it was so simple. Would that it was so simple. I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence, hmm? I thought a minute ago it was Lawrence. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I call you Hobie. Okay. So, would that it was so simple. Would that it was so simple. Would that it was so simple. Trippingly. Would that it was so simple. Trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. Would that it was... Would that it was so simple. Would that it was so simple. Would the detours assemble? Would the detours assemble? Would the detours? Would the detours assemble? Rufal, rufal, rufal. Would the detours assemble? Rufal, simple. Would the detours? Rufal, simple. Would the detours assemble? You could say soulful, rufal, soulful. Would the detours assemble? Would the would the detours assemble? Why are you doing this? Would the detours assemble? Just keep still. Would that it were so simple? It's complicated. It's such a perfect scene it's such a perfect scene you know Um, i love that scene i watched that movie for that scene absolutely and that's a movie and that watch the rest of the movie too but the movie's great and i feel like it did not get the 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 proper due no no um so so anyway so i'm gonna i'll say lebowski is my favorite but i also have to put like barton fink up there as just a work of genius Right. I remember the, f- well, I don't remember the circumstances the first time I saw Barton Fink, but I remember when I saw it, I was just like, wow, this movie is insane. John Goodman is so good. John and Mahoney I, is so good. Judy oh, John Mahoney. Davis is a, Love John Mahoney. Turturro yeah. is amazing. Well, and and I feel like John Goodman's character in in Barton Fink and his character in Inside Lewin Davis, like I feel like they have this very similar quality to oh, them. Oh brother, where art his oh brother, where art thou? True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Raising John Arizona Goodman, brothers. Oh yeah, very early early era John Goodman. They always shoot John. John Goodman is always this looming presence in their movies. I mean, especially in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is another uh-huh. one of my favorites. I don't know if I'd say it's one of my favorites. The, I mean, obviously the music is great. George Clooney's awesome. I, George Clooney, I feel like is at his best when he's working with the Coens. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a safe that's a safe bet. I had always <laughs> that was one thing with Lady Killers. When I saw Lady Killers, I felt like it just wasn't the right role for Tom Hanks. And yeah, I saw it once, and I like never. I haven't felt like I need to watch it again. I want to, but it's like I. Just haven't been there yet. The standout that I remember from that is uh, the interplay between J.K. Simmons and Marlon Wayans. IBS. You be what? Irritable bowel syndrome. Is there a men's room down here? Oh, come on. You shouldn't be using the men's room now. Or a ladies' room. Quickly. IBS. Man, if you knew you had the runs, why ain't you shit back at the house? Quickly. You don't want Elrond finding your stinking ass on the crapper? No choice. It's a medical condition. Quickly. You want a disgusting individual. You know that? Come on, follow me. I feel 30 pounds lighter. Thank you for being so understanding. Not everyone is, of course, which is why the biggest challenge of IBS is educating the public. Afflicts over 2 million people, yet most of us have never heard of it. And it strikes without regard to age, gender, or race. Oh, fuck, man. I don't want to hear about this shit. 
Well, that's exactly the kind of attitude we're fighting. I guess I never told you that's how Mountain Girl and I met at an IBS weekend at Grossinger's up in the Catskills. Of course, the tourist business there has suffered with the demise of the Morse belt. So they have various promotions, mixers, so on. This was a weekend for irritable bowel singles to meet and support each other share stories. Man, look here. I don't want to hear a single one of them stories, okay? Now, some of them are very Not moving. one fucking story! Look, I didn't choose to have IBS. Dang, shut the fuck up! There's no cure, you know. Only control. Lifelong condition. Yeah, you know, and being an asshole is a lifelong condition, too. Just drop the fucking tube. I'm not complaining. I did meet Mountain Girl. You don't... So I remember coming out of that movie saying, like, I really was was dis- I was disappointed with it. But J.K. Simmons and Marlon Wayans were fantastic uh-huh. and made that made that movie for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's some of them like intol- intolerable cruelty. I know I've seen it, but doesn't really leave an impression. No, not as much as. And I mean, Hudsucker Proxy, I appreciate I don't have I every time I watch it. I don't find myself enjoying it as much as I want to. I will say it's been a long time since I've watched it and I don't know how I'd feel about it watching it now. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I could. And but Bruce Campbell, true. another, another Coen brothers player who, who pops who up in Fargo, up. the series. Well, he also shows up in Fargo, the movie. That's right. Yeah. He is uh, the on like, those, like soap opera or that like cheesy movie that, is on the TV that uh, he's watching in the, yeah. the cabin. Um, you know, I mean, the reality is The Big Lebowski is a perfect movie, and it, to me, it's, it it's 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 kind of the perfect storm of the bizarre, like the character type of characters from Raising Arizona, mixed in with some of the type of plot. Because again, it's you know what people would are doing for money. Right. And also a fake kidnapping, maybe a fake. Uh, <laughs> she kidnapped herself, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, you kind of have a lot of the a lot of the elements in there. Um, But it's just this wild, this wild ride. And it also pays tribute to movies like The Long Goodbye. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, we could talk about Coen Brother movies. All night, but yeah, we won't. Yeah, but so, but we're, but we're grateful for uh, the, the films of the yeah. Coen Brothers, the stories that they tell, the people that they br- that they mm-hmm. work with to tell their stories. Yeah. Also, just another shout out to the um, to the song in Hail Caesar with Channing Tatum. Um, no, some what's it called? Something about no dames. Something about how there's not going to be any dames out at sea, like they're all yeah. like, shipping out, and they're not. It's not going to be any women, <laughs> right? But it's, how that's okay. But that's okay. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all right with that. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. And, it's yeah, so they, it's wonderful. It's brilliantly choreographed and shot. And Channing Tatum is awesome in it. Like I love it when Channing Tatum is having fun. Anytime, yeah. It, it's also, I mean, and and it's also somewhat sub- subversive. It almost it reminds me of the uh, um, friends come in all sizes uh, oh, from absolutely. Death to Smoochie, yeah, yeah. filled um, with innuendo. But yeah, Channing so, Tatum and, and Hail Caesar, yeah. I mean, Hail Caesar's just got a ton of performances that are 
worth watching it for. Yeah, I mean, Hail, Hail Caesar is the Coen brothers giving you their version of all the movies of like the 30s and 40s. You know, it's like, here's a little bite of this kind of movie. Here's a little taste of a Western. Here's a taste of, you know, this weird synchronized swimming aquatic scene. And like, they just give you little nibbles of each thing because it takes place in a movie studio. And then, of course, you have the the movie Hell Caesar that they're shooting. And, mm, and, and this, anyway. the whole subplot with Clooney and yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Dan... Clearly, this this movie oh has been adapted into uh, a brilliant television series. Uh, what else could you see happening with this? Uh, well, I would say if I was going to go anywhere with this, I would go into the future and I would visit. I'd revisit Scotty <laughs> and I, I would follow up with Scotty and just like what kind of life is this kid living now? Because you know the his his family pretty much that we know of his father or his grandfather and mother were dead his yeah. father you in know prison, in prison probably. probably for life yeah so uh, and that's where i think this now you you could go there you could go well let's revisit marge 25 years later and Mm -hmm. you know so now she's got a kid and maybe you know she's got you know her her kid is an adult and you know maybe that adult is is a cop but i feel like that ends up being more of a remake whereas i think taking a character from that movie and and following up with them 25 years later a character like scotty who you know just like jerry kind of forgets about him (laughs) We totally. Yeah. So it's like, let's see where Scotty Lundegaard has has ended up at, um, after all of these events. And yeah, tw- 25 years later, what's he still dealing with or or not 25 years later? I mean, like set it five years later, have, you know, I don't think we need to cast the same actor. Right. All I due, mean, all also. And also, who knows, maybe he ended up under the um, the parental supervision of Stan Grossman. Oh, yeah. You just ask Stan Grossman. He'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. for all we know, it's it's entirely possible that that would have been the, the arrangement that uh, that Wade would have wanted. Yeah. Yeah, that, that could make sense. So, yeah, I mean, you could totally see where where scotty ended up that's that's i think that's that's the the best thing i could think of the thing that that would work out the best that wouldn't just be a a retread Mm -hmm. of the original like oh well this time it's marge's son solving right the crime or marge's daughter solving the crime or yeah i yeah, what do you think? I yeah. I thought well, one of the ways that I went was a sequel where Jerry maybe somehow gets out of prison or breaks out of prison, but I I don't know I I just wasn't sure if I love the idea of a sequel. He's too much of a schmo to break out of prison. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, he's his life of being a schmuck is behind him. He's a schmo now, <laughs> full on schmo. Oh, in now, prison, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Prison, I'm sure, does not treat uh, Jerry Lundegaard very well. But uh, what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, what were you going to say? Something unless terrible? He, unless when I was imagining him, I was thinking of the TV series Oz and I was imagining him becoming like, like, like at a beach or just becoming like part of this, uh, like neo-Nazi cult. He would get killed so yeah. quickly if he was in an Oz style prison, you know? Yeah. No, I Jerry. Mean, well, I will say, I will say this also. I don't know if my, uh, my thoughts have been swayed because I had just watched Escape at Danamora. Um, the, I think seven part series with, uh, mm-hmm. Paul Dano and Benicio del Toro and Patricia Arquette. Oh, about so a prison break. Tony Denman, the actor who played, uh, Scotty in, in the movie, um, shares not, not the exact same birthday. He was born exactly two years after me. Oh, October 22nd. Okay. How about that? I'm on Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> so the, um, the one thing that I was thinking could be interesting. So mm-hmm. the television show, every episode starts uh, the the same way, such as the movie where it says this is a true story. The events, the events depicted, blah, blah, blah. Names have been changed out of respect for the, um, out of respect for the dead. The rest has been told exactly as it occurred. These aren't true stories. There's, there's, okay. Th- oh no, are... I was going to mention, no, no, I, I meant, to, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember like when, when the movie came out and that was how the movie started and, and then it was a big deal when someone finally like stayed for the entire credits, um, you know, because Coen brothers aren't known for doing post-credit sequences. Um, but someone stayed for the entire credits and was like, nope, at the end it says everything's fictional, which, yeah, we know that yeah. it's, yeah. But- you know, there there are certain inspirations, things that did happen that make their way into it. But anyway, but yeah. I think that it would be cool if there was a, a docu-series or maybe like a true crime podcast series about crime, like weird crime that happens in unexpected places. Mm. And, you know, right now we're living in a time where true crime TV shows and podcasts are extremely popular. But it's like, what if there was one that was like, got it's got the like Fargo stamp of approval on it. And it really is telling the true stories of um, these weird crimes in unexpected places. I like That's it. all I got. Yeah. I like it. That would be so kind of Fargo the podcast. Yeah, podcast or docu series or docu series but uh you know i i gotta say like they nailed it with this the the fx series it's on fx right yeah i think so yeah but, uh they they totally nail it it's it's beautiful it's brilliantly uh, written the the actors are all so good we just have like the greatest coolest actors involved Carrie Coon I mean forget it she's the best Mary Elizabeth Winstead is awesome Ewan McGregor playing twin brothers are amazing one of which is a schmuck one of which is a schmo <laughs> uh, yeah. and and Chris Rock in this new season is awesome and like you were saying before like even the characters that you would consider like I don't know C-level characters, they still have these, like, very full backstories. And, like, maybe it comes out in a monologue, or maybe it comes out in, like, a, a just a 
off character moment, but like you really get into the world of these people. And that's what's so great about, you know, these like whatever 10 or so episode TV series or TV seasons is, you know, it gives you time to really get into that world. And I feel like the Coen brothers, you know, what they're so good at is developing these worlds mm. and, you know, they, they kind of like don't operate with the same rules as the real world. They like, they define their own systems in which they operate. And I, and I love that. And that's kind of like what the, the TV show, it like lets it really develop and really develop. And it creates like these alternate histories that you totally accept because you believe this world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just really, really well done. I really appreciate it. And I highly recommend it. Uh, I believe that it's all on Hulu. At least yes. that's how I'm watching season four. The yeah. next day they come out on Hulu. Man, so good. Yeah, that's how and I watch. Timothy watched. Oliphant. Timothy Oliphant is back, yes. Uh, and I think that it was, was it on the last episode? Might have been the Death of Smoochie episode. We were talking about who could play some sort of villain. I can't remember. We said Michael Shannon for something. And then of I realized. We did. Oh, and then I said, oh, Timothy Oliphant would also be really good. I, I'm having trouble remembering exactly what was we it like the about. rival, the new rival for Smoochie or, so, or the, for president? Oh, was it the president thing? Yes, or? that's what it was. That's what it was. And uh, I was thinking Timothy Oliphant would also be a really good one. See, I, now, that makes me think of him on the grinder. So as himself on the grinder, so good. Uh, Timothy Oliphant also on season two of The Mandalorian. He's everywhere, wow. baby. Yeah. But hey, classic Timothy Oliphant, go back to live free or die hard. Uh or Deadwood, Deadwood actually. I watched well, Dead. I watched yeah. Deadwood last year, and man, that was such a good show. No, he's great. Owen Gabriel is that his live for your diehard name? Uh, Something Gabriel. Thomas Gabriel. Thomas Gabriel. Yeah, we know it's not Peter Gabriel. Not Peter Gabriel. No. Uh, Timothy Oliphant has never been in. He's never been uh, anyone's sledgehammer. He's never been anyone's sledgehammer. So, um, yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with Fargo? Other than it's great. Other, well, yeah. And other, I mean, yeah, like the Academy Awards are, you know, they are what they are, take it or leave it. But um, as somebody who sat through a preview screening of the English patient during which the projector malfunctioned and I was in that theater for way too long watching a movie that already felt way too long, yeah. how it beat it. The how it beat Fargo for best picture that year is hindsight awards. Yeah, because... oh, I know. Oh, when we do the hindsight awards, nineteen ninety. Well, I guess that yeah, nineteen ninety six. Oh, ninety six. Yeah. So getting such a do talking about the hindsight awards. Yeah, the English Patient is a movie that people only talk about when they're talking about long, boring movies, and Fargo is a movie that people talk about when they're talking about awesome movies. So there's your answer right there. Speaking of movies that people say are awesome, one of those movies is the movie that we'll be talking about on the next episode. That's right. Yeah. So going back 25 years before Fargo in 1971, Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is a, I don't know, a, a movie that a lot of people would be thankful for. Me, definitely. Um, love this one. And uh, I'm excited to to bust out my Criterion Blu-ray and watch it again. 
And as I was saying before, I've this is actually a movie that I have never seen in its entirety, but it's just always part of the conversation. So I'm grateful that I have the opportunity and now the kind of urgency to, yeah. uh, you know, to watch it because it's kind of it's always there on the radar. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what what you think of the end, <laughs> which you have yet to see. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. Well, Dan, on on your trip to Brainerd, yeah. I wish you a good journey. Oh, a good journey. Yeah. 